0: Romans chapter 3, as Gino indicated. We're going to try and uh, look at verses 9 through 18 tonight. Mount Everest was named in 1865 after Sir George Everest, British Surveyor General of India. It was once known as Peak 15. Why not? was first ascended on May 29, 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzing Norgay of Nepal. James Whittaker was the first American to, to the top on May 1, 1963. Junko Tabei of Japan was the first woman to make the ascent, May 16, 1975. Youngest person to reach the summit thus far, 15 years old. The oldest, 64. So there's still that's I'm waiting, by the way. I'm, Approximately 6,000 climbers have attempted to summit Everest. Only 2,249 have made it. 200 people have died trying that, that we know of. And of those, at least 120 bodies are still on the mountain. Climbing Mount Everest, it's almost a metaphor for human potential. If you can get to the summit, you've done something few have done or will ever do. There's a sense that you can do anything. You stand, both literally and figuratively, far above other men. Now, Mount Everest rises five miles above sea level on the earth, and the earth is about 8,000 miles in diameter. From an earthly perspective, it soars into the heavens. From a vantage point in the heavens, however, it would be unnoticeable. Somebody gave this illustration. They said, if you take a billiard ball two and a half inches in diameter and do a little mathematics you'll find that a protrusion on the billiard ball approximately as high as Mount Everest is to the earth would be less than one six hundredth of an inch high. There are no human fingers sensitive enough to feel such a ridge on a billiard ball. It would still seem smooth. Looking down upon the earth from a vantage point in the heavens, it appears as smooth as a billiard ball, Mount Everest and all. God looks down from heaven upon the righteousness of the human race. Even if your righteousness was like that of Mount Everest, reaching high above that of all your fellow men, and you are one of the few standing on the summit of good works, you would still be level with the rest of the human race. I think illustrations like that are important because we have a natural sense that we're better than others. Or when you share Jesus Christ with people, they don't always see their need because they are... You know, uh, better than others, or they feel that they haven't done things that are as bad as others. And it's hard for people to get a feel for the fact that God has, you know, we would say, uh, was looking at a level playing field. Uh, it, It doesn't matter how far short of His standard of perfection you fall, just that you fall short. Now, Jews, we learned last week, had an advantage over Gentiles because they had the special revelation of God through the scriptures. However, their advantage, we learned, did not alter the fact that they were just as lost as Gentiles. They might be on the Mount Everest of religion, but they were just as lost. And so verse 9 says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, or the word would be Gentiles. Those are the two divisions of the human race from a biblical standpoint. There are Jews, there are non-Jews who are Gentiles. And uh, they are all under sin, the Bible says. There's a difference between sin and sins. Sins indicates we do things that are wrong. We commit uh, individual sins. Sin, singular, refers to the fact that we are dominated by a fundamentally evil nature. Our predicament is not so much that we have done wrong things, but we are under the control and condemnation of sin and cannot by ourselves escape from it. As one writer put it, the difference is not unlike that which exists between the symptoms of a disease and the disease itself. Any solution to the human problem that fails to deal with the root cause of sin is no more a solution than a cold compress on a fevered brow as a cure for the infection causing the fever. Uh, And so you have to deal with the root cause, and that is sin, the sin nature. Now, this verse could also be translated, are we Jews worse off than Gentiles? It's a valid question in that it recognizes that if you have a greater revelation, you also have a greater responsibility to respond to it. And so it doesn't really matter which way the question is asked. Are we better? Are we worse? Because either way you read it, the point is that Jews are no better and no worse than Gentiles, but all mankind is under sin. Now, in the next several verses, Paul is going to quote from at least least six Psalms and the book of Isaiah. Why is he going to do that? Well, he needs to prove from the Scripture that this was not a new teaching. It was already there in the Word of God. Why then was there so much misunderstanding about God's method of saving people? Why, if you're a Jew and you had God's special revelation and you could read it, Why did you come to the wrong conclusion? And why, when Paul came with the message of grace, saying you need to get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, just like Gentiles, why were all these questions? Well, if you were to go to each of the Old Testament passages that are represented here, most of them, in their original context, contrast Gentiles and Jews, it would seem. And the Jews are called righteous in those texts. For example, in verses 10 through 12, Paul quotes from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. That's where he gets those verses from. In those verses, the psalmist describes people he calls, first of all, the workers of iniquity. But then he contrasts them with people he calls the generation of the righteous. And so if you're reading through that, you see two groups of people the generation of the wicked and the generation of the righteous. The Jews had concluded that the workers of iniquity referred to the unsaved Gentiles and that they, all Jews, were by birth the generation of the righteous. They equated being a Jew by birth with being righteous. Everyone else was lost. And so really all you had to do was be born a Jew And you were one of God's chosen people. You were of the generation of the righteous. Uh, And then you went on to uh, figure out how to keep the law in order to be even more righteous. In fact, those texts describe the righteous as anyone who had come to God by faith, who God had justified, who God had declared righteous. Everyone else, Gentile and Jew, was unrighteous. So you see... If you come to the Scripture with your own prejudice and you're reading Psalm 14 and you see the, the, the workers of iniquity and the generation of the righteous and you assume that God is talking about you and putting you in the generation of the righteous category because you're a Jew, then you're going to be stunned when Paul the Apostle comes and says, yeah, there is none righteous, no, not one, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why, why are we just learning this? And Paul would say, it's because you misread the Scripture. Not, this isn't a new teaching. It's because you misread what God uh, put in there. And when, he, when we get to chapter 4 and beyond, he'll start talking about Abraham, the, the first Jew. And he'll say, look, let's go back to Abraham before the law was even given. How was Abraham saved? Was he saved by the law? Was he born a Jew? A- and the Jew would have to say, well, no, of course not. No, Abraham was saved Because he believed God, the scripture says, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how everybody always gets saved, but this was revolutionary to the Jew. So you can see, this is a huge change in the way of thinking. It required Paul defend it from their own scriptures. Commentators have suggested that you can get a better handle on these next few verses if you see God portrayed first as a judge then as a physician, then as a historian, as he kind of reviews the human condition. And so Judge God renders the following judgment in verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, context is always important. Uh, A lot of errors will be uh, avoided if you go to the original context, especially if something that was quoted uh, in the New Testament, and try and understand uh, what's going on with that. Psalm 14, from once these verses come, begins with the famous phrase, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The words there is are not in the original text, so it reads, The fool has said in his heart, no God, which indicates one of two things. It indicates that this person has decided, despite evidence to the contrary, that there is no God, or it indicates that this person is saying no to God and living as they see fit. I guess the only point I'm making is that these are the same people Paul described in chapter one when he said, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. When the Scriptures say there is none righteous, not one, it means there has never been a man except Jesus, of course, the God-man, who had a perfect righteousness. And so when He says there's none righteous, no, not one, He says everyone is born into unrighteousness. No one has ever had the righteousness necessary uh, to make it into heaven. Even Adam, the first man, we would say was innocent, uh, no, you know, but he wasn't righteous in the sense of uh, being perfect. And so, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks after God. This is troubling to people, especially when you consider that God Himself has said that men can and should seek after Him. For example, I, uh, Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen. The Lord promises. He says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is why I mentioned the context of Psalm 14 and showed that these people are the same people who Paul said once knew God. Uh, It's possible for lost men to seek after God. So what does it mean, used of the human race, there is none who seeks after God? Well, I think it simply means that if a man is to be saved... God must take the initiative to reveal Himself to him. It means that God can only be known if He reveals Himself. We're reading too much into it if we conclude that it's impossible for the natural man to seek God, even if he is given revelation. God has revealed Himself through creation and conscience, but specially by the revelation of His Word. And so I guess what I'm saying is that no one would seek God and find Him apart from Him revealing Himself uh, because He's God. He's outside of ourselves. By definition, uh, you would know nothing about God unless He chose to reveal Himself. But He has. He's chosen to reveal Himself and in cre- as we've learned over the last few weeks in creation and through conscience in the Scriptures. And so it's perfectly reasonable for Him to also say, seek Me and you will find Me. And so... You can only know God by revelation, but praise the Lord, He has revealed Himself and He calls upon mankind to seek after Him. Whether you're the pagan in the jungle without the Word of God or you're the Jew who has the, completed, or the complete Old Testament, you are able to seek after God and find Him. Now, were they seeking God? Well, in chapter 1 we were told that although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Then in verse 12 it says, They have all turned aside the same people the same description in chapters 1 and 2 we learned that gentiles had turned aside from creation and conscience to worship the creature rather than the creator the bible there says hey they knew god they decided not to keep him in their knowledge and they turned aside from him and they uh, went after the creature rather than the creator and and so they turned aside and then we learned in chapter 3 earlier in chapter 3 that jews had turned aside by supposing that they could keep the law and achieve salvation as a work, rather than receive it as a gift. And so they were guilty of turning aside from the way of salvation as well. They had made salvation into a religion of works, uh, a birthright, rather than seeing the spiritual aspects of it. These are the people who willfully ignore God's revelation of Himself. It applies to Gentiles who willfully ignore God's revelation, and it applies to Jews who willfully ignore God's special revelation. Then he calls them unprofitable in verse 12. It turns out that's related to the word withered in John 15 verse 6 where Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out Excuse me, as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Uh, one thing about a uh, branch that is cut off and uh, laid aside, it's not going to be fruitful, is it? It's not going to bear fruit because it's cut off from the life-giving vine. And so to be unprofitable means you are unfruitful because there is no life-giving connection with Jesus. It says there is none who does good. No, not one. Of course, men can do certain good deeds, but those deeds have no spiritual value in and of themselves. In keeping with the idea that there is no life-giving connection and that it is like branches pruned from the vine and burned, there's no fruit being produced. And so God is just looking down on the human race and He's giving His judgment. He says, All men are sin, are, are under sin and they have no righteousness of their own by which to get into heaven. They are lost, they're in darkness. God reveals Himself to all men so that they might seek Him. Those fools who turn aside from revelation that God has given of Himself, those who do not seek Him, they're going to remain cut off from His life and all their good works cannot be considered fruitful from an eternal perspective. And so it's really a very simple analysis of the human race, Jew or Gentile. You have no righteousness of your own. You're under sin. And um, if you turn aside from my revelation, you're going to be unfruitful. My revelation tells you that you need to believe me and it's by faith that I impute righteousness to you. That's what Paul is getting at. And so next, God is portrayed as a physician analyzing the human condition. Verses 13 and 14. It says, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Jesus once said insightfully, What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. What comes out of the mouth, that would be your words. It represents what's in your heart. Even if you guard your words, what Jesus is really talking about is your mind and your thoughts from whence your words uh, come. If you're honest and you admit that your thought life is far, you will admit that your thought life is just far from righteous. I mean, it is. I mean, Jesus, when He did the Sermon on the Mount, He said, hey, you could keep all the outward laws you want you You can say that you 've never killed anyone you 've never committed adultery, and all he goes, but I know you 've done it in your heart because that 's the human condition uh, there he says guys there's not one among you who hasn 't looked on a woman with lust uh, if, you, you, you know if you've ever driven in you know l a traffic you 've wanted to murder people and, and you know that kind of a thing and and even if you haven 't taken it to that level i mean the on an honest person who's really you know tenderhearted and seeking after God you know that there's something wrong with you i mean you do your best you you, you guard your words you try to build people up but it, but it just there's there's a there's something going on in your heart that isn't quite right you have intrusive thoughts and and weird ideas and 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 you know it's it's just crazy what goes on in your mind and so that's what Paul is, uh, is representing here. He says that it, the great physician looks down and he says, I, you know, I, and he can do this because he's done something about it. He's solved the dilemma. He's, he's able to save you. But, but first, you need to know that there's a problem. Uh, there's a severe problem. And, and, of course, if you're a Jew, you don't think that there is. Uh, we have a little bit of trouble in this section, I think, because we're, we're just not Jews. And we, we're not first century Jews. And all of this... It, I'll, I'll tell, I'm going to show you at the end where we do have problems with this, we just don't know it. But we think, okay, alright, get past this stuff, would you please? Because we're not Jews. But the Jew would be just either heartbroken or just angry about what Paul is saying. When, and so he's saying, no, look, here, in your own scriptures this is what God says of you. You're like an open tomb. When you open your mouth... It's like the opening of a tomb. That's because inside we're spiritually dead. And thus whatever comes out of our mouths is like the opening of a tomb. Again, this is all by comparison. Compared to other men, I might seem to be at the summit of Everest in my thought life and my speech. Compared to God, I'm on a level with all other men because that's the comparison. We used to make all kinds of, you know... When I was a uh, young Christian, I used to talk about righteousness in terms of, of, uh, you know, swimming to uh, Catalina or to Hawaii. Some people are going to get... You jump off the Newport Pier and you head out to Hawaii swimming. Some people might get to Catalina, Jack LaLanne types, but you're all going to fall short of Hawaii probably, even if you get in the draft of a boat or something. You know, it's just not going to work out. And so you're gonna you're gonna drown and die. Somebody might say, "Hey, man, that guy—he got 20 miles. He's the best man ever." So what? You're dead, and that's the idea. So, so the Jew is just having a hard time wrapping his mind around this. And and, and so God says, you know, if you're honest about what's going on in your heart and mind, you're, a, you're you're a whitewashed tomb, is the way Jesus put it when he was on the earth. Now I've never had the privilege. Of being there when they exhumed a body, uh, so I don't. But I, I assume it stinks, uh, you know. And I, I know when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, they said, uh, "You know, Lord, it's been four days," and and they just said, "It's going to stink," you know. Uh, I don't know if we're ready for that. Um, sometimes I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. It's kind of weird, and that's why I tell you that you have to be careful. As a, as a chaplain, and I'm around some of these weird death scenes and stuff like that. Luckily, around here, there's not too much news media to worry about, uh, you know, but you have to be careful uh, because a lot of times, I've seen this uh, like in L.A. before, they'll, you know, the news people are out there and then you look back and some of the cops are smoking cigars and you think, well, you know, what's going on with that? And you think these insensitive cops, you know, and whatever. And the truth is, it stinks so bad, what they're doing smells so bad, that it's better than vomiting. And so they have to mask the odor. Uh, And and so, uh, you know, just give everybody a break, all right? Uh, If you've never been around that, it stinks. Uh, And so, so this is an insult in one sense, but Paul's just saying, hey, this is the way it is. And you should know this from reading your own scriptures. And, there, you know, there were lots of saved Jews. I mean, it wasn't like... I mean, David was saved. Uh, there were a lot of people saved that understood this principle. That it was by grace through faith. That it was by believing God, not by the keeping of the law. Uh, and, and so... Uh, but, you know, there were many who weren't as well. Now we have history interpreted by God. Verses 15 through 17. I, this is probably... A, as good a summary of human history as there is anywhere. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Overall conduct of the human race throughout history, continuing right through our so-called modern age. Uh, I, I know, Wasn't it, was it World War II they called it the war to end all wars? And how many wars have there been since then? And there will be wars upon wars and rumors of wars and conflicts uh, all the time. Uh, un- until uh, the Lord comes back. It- it's just the nature of the human race to be at war and to fight uh, and to raise up uh, you know, men like Hitler and, and those who uh, want dominion and power. In verse 18, Paul comes to a conclusion. He says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is from Psalm 36, verse 1, by the way. It's just a summary of the people Paul had just described, all unsaved Gentiles and all unsaved Jews would be included. So we could put it this way. All men are under sin, Gentiles and Jews. All are unrighteous before God. A Jew might be on the summit of Everest in comparison to a Gentile, thanks to the many advantages he had, but he was and is just as lost and in need of saving. Again, Paul seems to really belabor this point. And again, that's because the Jew especially thought he was saved as a result of his natural birth and that righteousness was achieved and maintained by keeping the law outwardly. If a Gentile approached a Jew seeking God, he'd be told that the way of salvation was through rites and rituals and rules and regulations. Even after Jesus came and died and rose from the dead, this was a huge problem in the New Testament. Because there were Jews who believed that what Paul was teaching was in error. It was only half the Gospel. That you had to believe in Jesus and convert to Judaism and still be a Jew and go through the rites and rituals of being a Jew. And that's why this is so important and Paul keeps talking about it. He's saying, I'm not teaching some new way of salvation. I'm just presenting what the Scripture said all along... But it was missed. It was misunderstood by most. Now, by the way, it's more common than you might think for even Christians to misunderstand this. And so while we're looking at this and thinking, well, I I get this. I, I don't really misunderstand this. A lot of Christians do misunderstand this. It's easy to think that a person was saved in the Old Testament by keeping the law or by offering the blood sacrifices. I know... I'll admit that when I first got saved, not knowing really anything about theology, I knew Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. He had died for me and rose from the dead, and He had changed me and transformed me. But when I started reading the Old Testament for myself, and before I got into any really good teaching, you, you might come to the conclusion that, well, I guess people in those days had to you know, offer sacrifices to be saved. And they had to keep the law to be saved. You know, praise the Lord, we're under grace. But, you know, finally you get to the book of Romans or you hear some decent Bible studies and you realize, oh no, no one was ever saved by sacrificing animals. The blood of bulls and goats can't do anything to save you. It was all representative of the fact that you believed God, that He was sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, So, salvation has always been... By God declaring you righteous based on believing in Him, on His Son Jesus Christ. Now beyond that, even today many Christian groups add some work or another to believing in Jesus. It might be baptism, or it might be the keeping of the Sabbath. Those are two that come to mind right away. But whatever it might be, if it is a work that is said to be essential to either achieve or to maintain salvation... Then those who are teaching it are in exactly the same position that the Jews were in. They're saying salvation involves work, and 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 Paul is saying it don't. That's paraphrased, of course, but uh, and uh, you know, and, and so you run into people like this. You know people like this who tell you that you, you have to believe in Jesus and be baptized. And that unless you're baptized, you're not saved. By the way, I was watching something the other day, I hope you won't be offended by this, but I was they were, they were baptizing a little infant. Have you ever seen an infant baptism? A Catholic church or a church at practice? It looks like waterboarding, if you ask me. Doesn't it? I mean, they just pour water on the little baby, and the little baby's kind of, you know, it's, it's weird. But anyway, we don't practice infant baptism. It's torture. It's not scriptural either, but... But, so there are people who say, no, you have to be baptized. So, yeah, that's great that you know Jesus. Have you been baptized? Because until you're baptized, you're not really saved. Okay. Uh, And then the keeping of the Sabbath is a big one in this area because there's a big Adventist population. And and it's like, well, you know, you have to keep the Sabbath. What does that mean? No one knows what that means, by the way. I I don't know what that means. How do you keep the Sabbath? I'd be into not working. That's fine with me, but... There's so many other rules and regulations. You know, somebody can do this and somebody can't do that. I mean, the Jews never even figured it out and it was their thing to figure out. And so, uh, but it's adding something to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this isn't such an ancient problem. And maybe we should belabor it more because there's still whole groups and whole denominations that are caught up in these kinds of things. So while we might think we get it, that we must be declared righteous, that we receive it as a gift by believing, Jews and many Christians, at least those who profess to be Christians, still don't get it. Or we might get it theologically. This is probably more our problem in terms of just a generalization. We might get all this theologically, but in practice, we have a tendency to drift towards legalism. Having begun in the Spirit, we start to think that we're going to make progress by adding rules and regulations that we're going to dress a certain way, have a certain diet, keep certain days. Uh, and and we act, we start to believe that we have a greater righteousness by doing certain things. In other words, it's not of grace anymore. It's not out of love for the Lord. It's not just enjoying my relationship with the Lord. There are things I have to do. And if I do them, I'm... I'm farther up the summit of Everest than the average Christian. Just let's be honest. I mean, we look at other Christians as being farther up the summit, as being much more spiritual than us, much more righteous than us. And then we start to do the things that we think that they do uh, because we believe that that's what's going to make us more spiritual. And uh it's a trap because it, it you you get you know the Christian life is not achieved that way. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul even said in Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfect in the flesh? And the most obvious thing that happens to Christians is that you know, we have a zeal to want to live for the Lord, but we, we, we adopt rules and regulations and then we, we pu- project them onto others. We feel superior to others. This is why there are always those awkward moments when Christians talk about certain things. You think, huh, you have the freedom to do that? I don't think you're very spiritual if you do that. And then they say something. And, and you, know, you know what I mean, we just, we're honest with each other, aren't we? I mean, you you know, you find out that somebody watches something. Really? Huh? Really? Really? And then you're so, you know, you're so self-righteous and you're this. And then they find out that you do something and they're like, wow, that's, you know, a Christian can do. And, and it's because we have this idea that our Christianity is defined by what we do rather than who we are and who we're in relationship with. And it's just, it's a natural thing. It's something that we have to fight. And so we're not, a, we're not really unlike these people. We have this same problem and Paul, and that's what's so radical about Romans, because Paul just comes and he says, "Do you realize that the Christian life is all of grace? And if you keep walking in the grace of the Lord, that's what the Lord requires. The righteousness is all His. You'll find yourself obeying the law because you love the Lord. If you, I've often used this illustration, but you know." you don't, I hope you don't have to get up every morning and say to yourself, I'm going to do everything I can to not commit adultery today. Uh, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I, I hope you just think, hey, I love my wife. I love my husband. And I want to live the rest of my life with this person. I want to honor this person and reverence this person and love this person. And and uh, lay down my life for this person. I want to agape this person, like we saw in the video. And, and then when something comes along, y- you know, it's like you're not even thinking along those lines. And so it's not a legalism; it's a love. And this is the this is the hardest thing I think about the, uh, about the Christian life. Because when we get into the love and all, then you start, to, people, like they did with Paul, we saw this fact, they say, well, you're, you're, you're uh, they call it antinomianism. It's against the law. In other words, you're, you're saying there is no law and people can do whatever they want. But I, I gave you that quote. It says, if, if you come to God and, and, and you know, n- realize you can do whatever you want and you still want to do the things you used to do, then you don't get it. You, you're, you don't have the Lord in your heart. Because that's the whole thing. You don't want to do those things anymore. You want to live for Him. You love Him. He loves you. And it's all in that relationship. Uh, you know, and it's not a legal relationship. It's, it's a love relationship. And so um, we're, not, we're not too distant from this in, in our heart of hearts. So, so you know, we're, we're not like the people who are saying you have to keep the Sabbath. You have to come to Wednesday night. Wednesday night is the really spiritual meeting. You know, if you're really spiritual, you come Wednesday nights. I kind of believe that, but I shouldn't. But anyway, you know what I mean? And, 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 but we can be. In my own life, I know I can, I can think, hey, I'm just more spiritual because I do this. And the, and the point is, you're not more spiritual because you do anything. It's all in the grace of God. And So, uh, so good stuff. We're going to have communion now. We're going to share at the Lord's table.